0: It's my joy to open up to you the word of God again this morning, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn to Matthew chapter 14, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. This morning, we will immerse ourselves in a biblical narrative, historical narrative that describes a very familiar passage of scripture. Commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. But before we look at that, I want to preface our thinking this morning with a few thoughts regarding miracles. And I've entitled this sermon this morning, The Compassionate Miracle. You know, as I thought about this, when I was a child, I was always amazed at the miracles found in the Bible. And I thoroughly enjoyed my Sunday school classes when our faithful Sunday school teachers would get out the flannel graph and go over all of the Bible stories. As I thought about it, my mind immediately went to the miracle of Moses when his staff turned into a snake and then back again. And then later on, when Aaron threw his staff out and Pharaoh's sorcerers did the same thing and through the power of demonic wizardry caused their stabs to as well look like snakes and then all of a sudden Aaron's gobbled them all up. My mind went back to the incredible plagues that God brought against Pharaoh proving that Israel indeed worshipped the one true God. I reminisced about the miracle on Mount Carmel with Elijah when God brought down the fire upon the altar and all of that story with the prophets of Baal. My mind went to the parting of the Red Sea and somehow I can still see these images on the flannel graph boards. I know we don't have that much these days, but in my day we did. Maybe we still use them some. And I think of Joshua and the walls of Jericho and I think of Hezekiah's prayer when Sennacherib and the Assyrians had defeated Lachish and now they were upon Jerusalem and he prayed that God would deliver them. And the angel of the Lord slew one hundred and eighty five thousand Assyrians that night. And I think of all of the miracles, even that we've been studying of late as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus has demonstrated his power over demons and over death and over disease, over nature. And then later on, as we think about the the signs and the wonders of the apostles when they validated both the message and the messenger, and the people stood in awe as they observed the glory of God through miracles. And I'm struck with that phrase that Moses uses in Exodus 15 and verse 11 when he said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And indeed, there is no one other than the God that we worship here this day. But today we are confronted with another astounding miracle. In fact, it is the only one of many thousands of miracles that Jesus performed that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels which certainly attests to its significance. And this is a miracle that demonstrates the the divine love and compassion and certainly power of God to be able to create and thus validating the deity of of Christ. And as we look at it today, we will see how that this miracle exposes the danger of superficial faith and a number of other things. So, So let's keep this in mind as we read the text this morning. And as we endeavor to unpack it, beginning in verse 14 of Matthew 14. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desolate and the time is already past. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5000 men who ate aside from women and children. Here, dear friends, we see Jesus is ending his Galilean ministry by the feeding of 5,000. Later on, at the end of his Gentile ministry, when he ministered in that Gentile region, he will again feed 4,000. And it's interesting, at the end of his Jerusalem ministry, he will recline and eat a meal in the upper room with just his disciples. There are three very important spiritual nuggets that I would like to help us glean from this mine this morning, and they would simply be this. We will see the priority of compassion, the problem of short-sighted faith, and the power of God. And I trust that your spiritual affections will be stirred this morning as much as mine were this past week as I studied this text and prayed over it. First of all, I want to draw your attention to this concept of the priority of compassion. Let's keep in mind the context here. Jesus has just received news of John's beheading as well as his disciples, and he's leaving this area. He is tending to his anxious disciples who were no doubt fearing that they would end up suffering the same way as John the Baptist, and indeed all of them but John did. And so he was comforting them and encouraging them and preparing them for what lay ahead, reminding them of the high cost and yet the eternal value of following Jesus. And so he gets into a boat with his disciples, and uh, Mark's Gospel tells us that as well that, that, that they go to a lonely place, To rest a while for there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So the rigors of ministry were intense and now Jesus is and and the disciples are in a boat. They're moving actually over to another area along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And many of the people are seeing this and they begin to make uh, the journey around the, the, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee there, which is really a very large lake seeing which way the boat was going, because they wanted to be there when Jesus got there. And so perhaps Jesus and the disciples enjoyed a couple of hours of purposeful involvement with his disciples where they could talk about uh, just the difficulties they were facing and, again, to encourage them with respect to what had happened to John the Baptist. But they were still exhausted, As Mark's text reminds us, so many people coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat. So the multitudes were following them on foot, trying to be there when they get off the boat. And as we will see, Jesus, even though he was tired, lovingly serves them. But before we look at that, we want to ask the question and answer the question, what kind of people made up the crowd? And as I thought about it, the crowd was made up of people like Jesus had described before, the few and the many. Remember, he spoke of the narrow gate versus the broad gate. And certainly we see this lived out here in this text. Certainly the vast majority of the people that were in the multitude that Jesus is now going to, to face were what we might call thrill seekers. They were fascinated with his miracles. Their motivation to come around Jesus, to be around him, was simply to be entertained, to be thrilled. You know, give me something. In fact, as I think about it, it is the same motivation why most people come to church these days, or at least many churches. There's no attitude of humility or reverence. Certainly they would be utterly bereft of the the Beatitude attitudes that Jesus talked about earlier in his Sermon on the Mount. They're not coming broken in spirit, poor in spirit, mourning over their sin, meek and gentle, hungering after righteousness, thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, and seeking to make peace with God. No, that's not why they were coming. The vast majority of the people were coming to be wowed, to be awed. They weren't coming to worship Jesus, but to use him to somehow satisfy their lusts. As a footnote, I think of the following that Jesus had. And just think what, it, what he could have had as a following if he would have given them what they wanted like so many churches do today. Churches that will go to any length to make their worship services as worldly as possible to attract crowds. To see how wide they can open the gate to herd crowds in down the broad way of destruction. That rock and roll religion, I call it. To be like the world in order to win it is their philosophy where you have pastor wannabes trying to lead people into their what they would call church when in fact they're nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. Just think if Jesus had done that. Just think of all the thousands of people he would have had following him. Well, we know as we look at this text and others that that's not what Jesus did. He did not cater to their needs. He did not give them what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. He spoke the truth and many of them abandoned him. But this would have been the majority of the people that were in the multitude. The next smaller group that would have been in that multitude would have been the apostate Jewish zealots those that were politically motivated, those that saw him possibly as the Messiah that could help them overthrow Rome. Again, they were not there through any spiritual motivation. They saw Jesus only as a means to an end. And certainly if you're going to go to war and overthrow Rome, it'd be great to have a miracle worker on your side. And that's what they saw in Jesus. In fact, John's account tells us that uh, after the feeding of these people, that uh, many of them took him by force or tried to take him by force to make him their king. And Jesus slipped away from them. And so you have not only the thrill seekers, but also the political minded that wanted a Jesus to be their king. Again, no spiritual motivation. Then, of course, you also have the religious elite snooping around. They were dogging him all the time the ones with the luxurious and ostentatious robes and the funny-looking little hats, uh, those Pharisees and scribes that felt threatened by his popularity, the ones that lived the high life, that enjoyed all of the wealth and the power, as so many religious charlatans do even this day, wealth and power and immorality, of course, being the opiate of all charlatans. So they were there because they were afraid of what was going on. Too many people were following Jesus and they were trying to find a way to trip him up. And then, of course, you had another group of people, the sick and the diseased, the poor, the disenfranchised, those that were desperate for some kind of physical relief. But again, most of them had no desire to understand who Jesus was in terms of their God and come to him in repentance and saving faith. And then, folks, you have the final little group, the very small handful of people that were in the multitude. And this would have been the remnant of true believers, the ones that entered in or were in the process of entering in through the narrow gate of self-denial and brokenness over sin. Remember, Jesus said, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. These, of course, would have been the true worshipers, ones broken over their sin, the ones that were truly seeking the Savior, longing to be reconciled to God. In fact, John's gospel tells us in John 6 and uh, verse 28 that these people were were seeking Jesus for spiritual healing and power. And then he goes on and he says that, that they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And of course, Jesus was ignorant of the sophisticated marketing strategies to attract consumers into the church with a winsome and worldly message. So what did Jesus do? Well, he blew it according to our modern standards. He preached a terribly offensive sermon. If you study the John six account, he preached about the sovereignty of God and the election of his people and him being the actual bread of life. And as a result, Most people abandoned him, but the remnant remained and they responded. And in John 6, 34, it says that they said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. So that makes up the multitude. That gives you an idea of the people that were swarming after Jesus. And it really struck me that, again, though Jesus was physically exhausted, and I know what that's like in ministry. and Many of you do as well. Though he was physically exhausted and though he knew the makeup of the crowd, he knew how hard hearted many of them were, how self-absorbed and self-indulgent they were with no understanding whatsoever of genuine worship. Still, he showed compassion for them, not just in word, but also in deed. So here we see, first of all, the priority of compassion In verse 14, it says, and when he went ashore, he saw a multitude, saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. The word sick literally means those without strength, those uh, that that would have been uh, there with various physical diseases and many of them that had to be carried to that place. He had compassion for them. The word compassion in the original language is one that means to to have the bowels yearning. They believed in that day that the bowels or the viscera, kind of as we would say, your guts would be the seat of all compassion, the seat of all emotion. And so he was moved with compassion in his bowels, in his viscera. We would put it this way, perhaps. He felt as though his guts were being ripped out. We've said that before. Such and such happened and it ripped my guts out. That's the concept. Now, folks, what was it? And this is very important. What was it that caused him to be so deeply moved with pity? What caused the good shepherd to somehow grieve in his heart and in his guts for what was going on? Was it because he saw their tremendous need to be entertained Did he look at them and say, oh, my, they have such a craving for another thrill? Did he look at them and see their frantic desire for a political leader? Is that what was breaking his heart? Did he look at them and say, oh, my, they're so desperate in their quest for a purpose driven life? Is that what moved him? Did he look at them and say, oh, these poor people, they need prosperity and they need wealth? And I'm grieving over that. Or perhaps he looked at them and said, oh, these people, they're just longing for a new kind of worship experience that would be much more like the world that they love. Or perhaps Jesus became convicted and he looked at them and he thought, boy, I've just been way too preachy. I'm grieving over their frustration that the message of the gospel is too restrictive. It talks too much about sin and damnation and judgment and the need for repentance. And I've talked way too much about the cost of discipleship. So what I need to do is widen the gate for these poor people. Are those the types of things that ripped his guts out? Well, obviously not. Dear friends, he grieved over the seriousness And the consequences of their sin. He saw them in their confusion, in their suffering, and in their spiritual blindness. Mark chapter 6 and verse 34 helps us understand more of what was going on in the bowels of our Lord. In that text, in verse 34, it says, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? The text says he began to teach them many things. The grammar indicates that he began to teach them and he continued to teach them more and more and more. He saw that they were ignorant. They were defenseless sheep. They were wandering around aimlessly without a shepherd, too stupid and too stubborn and too deceived to understand what truth was, unable to recognize the seriousness of their lost condition. Unable to see the consequences of where their life was ultimately taking them. That's what ripped his guts out. So what did he do? Well, obviously, he took an opinion survey to find out what the people needed. He polled the people, right? He brought in a marketing firm to help him understand where these people were really coming from. So he could really address whatever their felt needs were. Well, obviously, he didn't do that. He didn't give them what they wanted because that would have been physical, earthly types of things. Instead, he gave them what they needed and what they needed was the truth. And so he taught them. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, we read that he taught them about the kingdom. As well as healing the sick. He taught them about holiness and sin and repentance and grace and mercy and faith in him. Beloved, this is the priority of compassion. Seeing people as sheep without a shepherd. And leading them to the good shepherd. Yes, see their physical needs. Do all you can to address them. Certainly we don't have the power to heal them. But it is essential that we emulate what Jesus did. And what he did is he saw them in their great need, even though they didn't see their need. And he addressed what they truly needed, which was an understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we all need to be about the task of evangelism, fulfilling the Great Commission. And when we do, then we, in fact, live out that priority of compassion That we see here in this text with the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, the multitudes did not want Jesus on his terms, but rather on their own terms. And they did, like people do today, create a new Jesus. Create a Jesus that I like. Create my own Jesus. You hear all this stuff about my Jesus, my Jesus, my Jesus, rather than the Jesus So they would create a new Jesus like we have in so many circles today, one that winks at sin, one that's easy to kind of manipulate to make you rich, to make you wealthy, one that perhaps will moonwalk across a stage in front of thousands of people to the beat of some rock and roll song and then high five all of the emotionally charged seekers and then say to them, see, folks, I'm no different than you. In fact, I'm here to meet all your needs. I'm the feel-good Jesus, the cosmic butler that you all need. Follow me and you'll be happy. Don't worry about all that holiness stuff. It's all about being happy. Well, folks, obviously, I'm being facetious here to make a point. To help you see that what ripped the guts out, so to speak, of our Lord Jesus Christ was seeing the tremendous spiritual need that those people had and yet were utterly blind to. So Jesus agonized in the depths of his being because they were sheep. Without a shepherd, by the way, this was a familiar Old Testament concept. You see, the religious leaders in the Old Testament and even in that day were much like the pastoral predators that we have in pulpits today telling the sheep what they want to hear versus what they need to hear. Fleecing the flock for personal gain rather than feeding them the life-giving word of God and leading them in righteousness. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2. We see God addressing this very issue through the prophet. There we read, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? In other words, they were in it for what they could get out of it. They were feeding themselves, making money off of religion, so to speak. They scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered, referring to the sheep without a shepherd. Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep, God says, and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep. So I will seek out my shepherd, I mean, my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. You see, folks, this was the priority of the compassionate shepherd, preaching and teaching the truth, evangelizing the people. So we see Jesus teaching them and loving them in this way, the priority of compassion. But secondly, there's something else that we notice in this text, and that is the problem of short-sighted faith. Now, help me help me here by thinking very carefully Notice what it says, first of all, in verse 15. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, the place is desolate and the time has already passed. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Isn't this interesting? You know, this is so common for us to do, sometimes unwittingly. And that is to see a problem and then immediately go to God and tell him what he needs to do about it. God, here's the remedy. Here's the problem. And here's the remedy. Now. You've got to catch the scene here. The multitude that we have here are probably exceeded 25,000 people. I know many times you hear, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. But when we look at verse 21, it says uh, there were about 5,000 men who ate aside from women and children. And those people in those days had very large families. There were many single women with children that would follow Jesus So it would have probably been somewhere in the neighborhood of about twenty five thousand people, maybe in excess of that. So you've got a big problem here. You've got all of these hungry people and they're in a desolate area. Okay. in other words, there's no McDonald's, there's no Shoney's, there's no place to eat. And many of these people, if you understand the geography, they would have traveled maybe eight to ten miles by foot. To get over around to the place now where Jesus was at. So there was nothing to eat. Well, the disciples saw this, and so they say, you know Lord, you know, as if you hadn't noticed, the place is desolate here and it's time to eat, and so you need to send the multitudes away somewhere so that they can go into the villages somewhere and buy some food. In fact, John's gospel tells us that Jesus, had anticipated this very problem and discussed this problem earlier with Philip. Now, normally, Philip was in charge of these matters. You may remember when we studied Philip, he was kind of the bean counter, as I call it. He was consumed with process and protocol, highly organized type of a guy, obsessed with making sure everything goes okay. And it's interesting that the Lord tells him earlier in John 6, 6, Um, He he talks with Philip about this very issue and it says that he, he did it to put him to the test for he himself, referring to Jesus, knew what he was intending to do. You know, the Lord was anticipating the problem that Philip and Andrew and the rest of the boys would have with faith. He knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew they were afraid because of what had happened to John the Baptist. He knew that there was going to be a multitude out there. and, And he knew that they were going to say, my goodness, what are we going to do with all these people? And so the omniscient, omnipotent Jesus anticipates all of this. And he begins to set up what is about to be an incredible object lesson to teach these disciples Faith. So Jesus wanted to see if Philip would trust him or would he panic. Well, Philip panicked. <laughs> Philip says to him, "You know, he examines his, his earthly resources." In verse seven, he says, uh, "Lord, all we've got's two hundred denarii worth of bread. It is not sufficient for them, for for everyone to receive a little. I mean, we don't have enough money." And certainly, the Lord wished he would have said, "Lord, obviously." We don't have the money, but you can do all things. We'll have to trust you. Well, likewise, John's gospel tells us that that Andrew had found a a little boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And he also was filled with worry because of like, my, this is all we've got. Woe is me. What are we going to do? Well, we got to depend upon our own resources and we don't have enough. How sad when you think about it. They had witnessed Jesus. So many times, performing miracle after miracle, they had walked with the creator of the universe, the one who had parted the Red Sea, who had struck Pharaoh in the wilderness. And yet now they're despairing over this situation, feeling as though I I guess we have to take it into our own hands. and, And we also have to instruct almighty God as to what he needs to do about it. Isn't that just like us? What a picture of short-sighted faith. Dear friends, what a supreme insult to our precious Savior to ever question his infinite resources and power. And then to add insult to injury, to come along and concoct our own solution and tell God what he needs to do. What amazing pride. You know, I fear that the lash must strike all our backs at this point. Because we're all guilty of this type of thing. Many times unwittingly. It reminds me of horses that I've worked with and ridden. One that I have even now. Horses that what we, when they're afraid of things all the time, we say that they're hunting boogers. And that's how we are. We're like a horse that sees a leaf and jumps out of the way. And then sees a bird that flies and runs over here. And just always looking for something to be afraid of. And that's kind of how many people go through life. Always blowing up at some strange thing and panicking, not knowing what to do, because we end up living by sight, not by faith. And then responding to challenges by sounding the trumpet of retreat. Folks, we have to ask ourselves, where is our confidence here? Where where, where is our vision? Where is the exhilarating Experience of trusting God to prove himself powerful on our behalf when we are confronted with the emptiness of our own resources. I think of the story of Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary. That first went to China when he was going to China. The story goes that he was on a sailing vessel and the wind had ceased. And of course, without wind, the ships are dead in the water. You've heard that phrase before. It left the ship in a calm sea, and the tide was beginning to drift the ship towards the shore of islands filled with eager cannibals, hungrily awaiting a great feast. So the captain knows that this great Christian is on board, and he calls for Taylor to pray. And Taylor says to the captain, I will, provided you set your sails to catch the breeze. Well, the captain refused. He didn't want to look stupid. He didn't want to look foolish. I mean, you don't unfurl your sails in dead calm. So Taylor said to him, I will not undertake to pray for the vessel unless you will prepare the sails. Well, finally, the captain agreed. And as the story goes, while Taylor was engaged in prayer, a knock came upon his door. And Taylor said, who's there? And the captain responded, are you still praying for wind? And he said, yes. And the captain said, well, you better stop praying for we have more wind than we can manage. Folks, isn't it amazing when you think about it, all of the blessings that we forfeit because we fail to call upon our all sufficient savior in our private closet of prayer knowing full well that he is capable of doing all that we ask according to his will. Now, I want to digress here for a moment. As I think about it, I must warn you, as I have had to warn myself as well, that unless there is a secret devotion to God where the heart is regularly engaged in private prayer, then our prayers are nothing more than a sham, nothing more than hypocrisy. How dare we presume upon the grace of God when the only time we come to him is when we're in desperate need. It's like a child who would never have anything to do with his father until all of a sudden he needed something. Last Wednesday night, we talked about John 15 and Christ being the vine and the father being the vine dresser and how he prunes the branches of the vine to cause them to bear more fruit, referring to Christians that are attached to the vine. And then he, of course, discards branches that bear no fruit. And in that text, we were reminded how Jesus repeatedly emphasizes the importance of abiding in the vine in order to bear fruit. And folks, the concept here is that of, again, a secret devotion to God. Do you have that? Do you have in the private, in your private life, a life of worship where you regularly, habitually, as an event, come before Almighty God and do business with Him? That's what it means to abide in the vine. The Lord Jesus said that we are to have an attitude of worship. Worship's not something that we do. It's an attitude. And we are to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, which is a perfect blending of the subjective, which is the spirit, regulated by the objective, which is the word of God. A heartfelt expression of spontaneous praise that that flows naturally out of the wellspring of a biblically informed mind. Folks, that's the key to answered prayer. When you abide in the vine, that's why Jesus said in John 15, verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. In other words, when there is a private, secret devotion to God, when our minds are informed by the word of God as we have studied it. As we have grown in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, and as we continue to do that, as all of that is going on within us, we begin to have the mind of Christ. We're we're controlled by the word of Christ, and therefore we will not ask things contrary to the will of God. Therefore, he will answer our prayers. Now, most prayers go unanswered because people are not abiding You know, there's very little discipline in the Christian life in our day. For most people, the only discipline they have is to manage to get themselves out of bed, to drag themselves to church for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. Well, folks, that's very different than what the Lord would have for us. There needs to be a private worship in our life where we, like Christ, seek lonely places to go and habitually do business with God upon our knees. This is abiding. And when we abide in the vine, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Well, certainly the vine dresser pruned the vine of the disciples that day. As he cut away some of their short-sighted faith, proving himself once again to be the one in whom they should trust. And notice how Jesus puts them to the test. Verses 16 and 17. First of all, he says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, can't you imagine the consternation on the face of the disciples? It's like, you want me to feed them? With what? That's why they said to him, we have... Here are only five loaves and two fish. And it's like Jesus is trying to make the point. <laughs> it's almost as if he's saying, that's the point. Why don't you trust me? Instead of living consistently with this short-sighted faith. It's as if he's saying to them, men, you will never be able to accomplish anything for my glory. You will never be able to survive what is going to confront you after I leave. Unless you learn to trust in my resources and not your own. What an incredible object lesson here. To teach them not only the priority of compassion, but also to expose the problem of short-sighted faith and the importance of learning to trust in Him and not themselves. Which leads us to the third glorious nugget of truth that we find here. As we see the power of God, as Jesus proves his deity, notice what happens here. Verses 18 through 21. And he said, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Mark's gospel helps us see that when he brings the multitudes to recline on the grass, uh, he grouped them in groups of fifties and a hundred. So literally, he's taking these thousands of people and having them sit down, recline on the grass in little groups so that the disciples can get through them. Now, you've got to get the scene here. And I believe he did that so that the people could see what was about to happen. If everybody's standing, certainly the short people would not be able to see this way. Everybody would be able to see. And also, they would be able to distribute the food. Rather than having people, you know, like you see our helicopters, they come down to the tsunami victims and people just swarm them. There's no way that you can, you can, you know, distribute things in an organized manner. And so he says to them, bring them here to me and order the multitudes to recline on the grass. And then notice, he says, the text says, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And then I find this fascinating. It says, and breaking the loaves, He gave them to the disciples. Now, if I do my math right, we've got 12 disciples. We've got five loaves. That means you have to divide three of those loaves in half and take two of those loaves, two of those loaves and divide them in thirds. All right. So he takes what little they have and he divides it even more and basically gives each disciple now a little piece of bread. Because he's told them, I want you to feed them. And I'm not only going to take what little meager resources we have here. I'm going to make it even smaller here. And then notice the text. In such an incredible economy of words, such profound truth. We read, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. I mean, folks, this is staggering. I mean, this adds new meaning to the concept, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They've got a little piece of bread, and now they're walking through the multitudes, feeding them. And they all ate, it says, and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. Boy, don't you see the illustration there? My resources are sufficient, yours are not. You trust in me. I will give you all you need to accomplish my will for my glory, and you will have plenty left over. God gives lavishly, doesn't he? He's not stingy. And there were about 5,000 men who ate aside from women and children. Now, folks, I find it fascinating here what Jesus did not do that he could have done. Think with me. He could have filled them all without feeding them. Just like that. Now you all feel full and oh boy, you know, I was hungry a few minutes ago. Now, no, he didn't do that. He, he could have caused a personal basket of food to appear in everyone's lap. Just like that. Or he could have produced a huge smorgasbord tables everywhere in various groups and people could go help themselves. Or he could have filled huge baskets for the disciples to carry. Of course, they would have been very, very tired by the end of the several hours it would have taken to go back and get more baskets and to distribute all the food. But he didn't do that. Here's what he did. And I want you to catch this. Friends, he multiplied little into much. He multiplied little into much. What a marvelous object lesson of of his power in the lives of of his disciples. Now, again, remember, this is this is a very important lesson for them at this time. They're anxious because of the beheading of John. They were they were afraid of what lay ahead for them. They were little men with little resources. Yet by the power of God and their faithful obedience, they could now have all that they needed to serve the Lord through his resources, through his strength. And the Lord was going to multiply all that they needed thousandfold, a thousandfold, over and over again. That's crucial that you understand this. Friends, his grace and provision is always sufficient, but only at the very moment it was needed. He did not give to the disciples suddenly a great storehouse of food upon which they could look and they could measure and be distracted from their faith in the unseen and, 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 and timely provision of their omniscient and omnipotent Lord. They couldn't say, oh, wow, now look at this pile that we have. I guess we can feed them. Thanks, God. But rather, they have a little piece. And as they go to every group, suddenly that little piece is multiplied. And there is creation that occurs. Over and over again. And I believe that as they walked through the thousands of sinful people that sat there. Reclining on that grass with with all of their hard hearts and all of their phony reasons for being there. Don't you know the disciples had to have wept as over and over and over again the incarnate creator repeatedly. And perfectly fashioned precisely what was needed at the very instant it was served. Proving to them over and over thousands and thousands of times as they handed out that food to those people. Now do you see my resources are sufficient? Now do you see that that, that I will create what you need if you will but trust in me? What an object lesson. Trust me and I will provide. And I will do it precisely when it is needed. It is needed. Lest your faith be distracted. How many times we live by sight, not by faith? How many times are we willing to serve God as long as our bank account is full? Well, I'm willing to follow Jesus wherever He leads as long as my retirement account is fully funded. Oh, I'm willing to take a stand for Christ in the workplace as long as my job is secure. I'm willing to step out on faith. As long as I can look at something and realize that the risk isn't too great, because after all, I'm not sure God is all he says he is. Oh, child of God, this is a lesson we would all do well to learn. If I can put it this way, faith is exercised only when we choose to step into the unknown. When, when like the disciples, we, we look at the minuscule resources we have in our hand, Knowing more is required and that only God can can give it. And then we choose to hand the little to the one who needs much. And as we do that, suddenly the divine provision is there. This truth is repeated over and over in Scripture. Remember in Second Kings four, Elijah comes to the poverty stricken widow who had only one small flask of oil. He tells her, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all of your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And then he says, then I want you to go into a secret place and I want you to pour into all of those vessels and set aside all of the full ones. And so out of one vessel now, she had to exercise her faith and get other vessels. And now out of this one, every time she poured There was enough for yet another. And the text says that she poured until she ran out of vessels. Don't you know, she probably thought, oh, I should have gotten more vessels. I should have trusted God for something bigger. I think of Abraham who could have refused to obey God when he was asked to slay his son and therefore ruin any prospect of the fulfillment of the covenant. And yet... Abraham's hand was not stayed until it started to descend upon his son. When when Abraham exercised his faith, knowing that God would do something, it was only at that point that God stopped him. You do your part, God does his. That's the point. I think of Moses when he was told to pick up the snake. He looked at the snake and It's like, Lord, can't you show me that it's going to turn into a staff before I reach down there? No, not until you touch it. That's when it turned into a staff. I think of of Naaman. Though he was leprous, he was not going to be healed until he exercised his faith and went and dipped himself into the Jordan. I think of the wine at Cana. You realize that they first had to draw the water before he would make it into wine. Folks. Here's the point. God provides for those who willingly choose to act in obedience, even when it seems irrational. But you have to make that step. You have to move in that direction. This is so important. I want to have you turn to Joshua as we wrap this up this morning. Turn to the book of Joshua for a moment. Joshua chapter three. This is such a glorious truth that flows from this text. In Matthew 14, we see it again reiterated in Joshua 3. Let me give you the context. Israel is about to cross over into the Jordan or, or cross over the Jordan River, I should say, from um, 40 years of, of wilderness wandering. Moses has now passed the baton on to Joshua. Joshua is about 90 years old. There's about two million Jews now there on the other side of uh, the eastern side of the Jordan, which, by the way, had filled its banks at that time of year. It was a massive body of water rushing along. About two million Jews camped there. And they have now three days to prepare to enter into the promised land that was filled with unimaginably wicked people. And they had been told in verses three and four to, to stay two thousand cubits away from The Ark of the Covenant, that would be three thousand feet for you guys that that shoot. Uh, That would be about a thousand yards. You got to stay at three, about a thousand yards. Why? Because they were not to lose sight of the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God that was going to go before them. They had to keep their eyes fixed upon the one who is the author and the finisher of their faith. They were then told in the text to sanctify themselves, which meant to to literally turn their hearts to God in faith, to trust in the in the promises that he had that he had given them, that he was going to deliver them and to relax in his great care and and to even rejoice in the miracle that was about to take place on their behalf, to somehow glory in the covenant of his grace that had been promised to them beforehand uh, and to uh, to realize that the covenant what was about to be realized with this miracle. And that's why it says in verse four, do not uh, do, do not come near it, referring to the ark, that you may know the, the, the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, notice what he says in verse six. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, take up the ark of the covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went ahead of the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. All right, now, folks, let's stop a minute. You, you, you've got you've got. A couple of million people here, knowing that they're about to go across. And I've been to the area. You can see it. You can see where Jericho was on the other side and all the part of the, 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 the promised land there. And you've got this huge rushing river. Now, don't you think it would have been nice if God could have shown them a bridge or shown how the waters were up on its edge and they could see the dry land? That's not the way God works. He wants you to trust Him up to the very second And that's what he does here. Notice verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now, then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel and one man for each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord. The Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, folks, imagine if you were there with your family and you're looking at the river flowing and you can see the ark up there. The tribes were arranged so that they could always see the presence of God going before them. And you're seeing this, 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 this rushing river and your children are saying to you, Daddy, how are we going to get across that? And you say, trust God at the moment that we need to cross, he will deliver us when the toes of the priests touch the water. That's when God will part it. Verse 14, so it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks. All the days of harvest that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, which would have been about five, uh, 15 miles up the city that is beside Zarethan and those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah. The salt sea were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho and the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on the dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Folks, the point of all of this is simply without faith, as Hebrews eleven six tells us. It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What an amazing reality. And even as God used the meager resources of a little boy's lunch. For his glorious purposes, even so, God uses our paltry resources to accomplish incredible things for nothing is impossible with God folks we must learn to trust God for the impossible trust him all the way up to the edge to the moment you hand the loaf commit yourself to abiding in the vine with a secret devotion faithfully obeying and abiding in his word and then trust God for the impossible some of you are here today and you need to trust him for the forgiveness of sins some of you need to trust Him in ways that you never have before for a victory over some life-dominating sin. Some of you are here and, and you need clarity in knowing how and where God is to use you for His glory. Some of you need restoration in a marriage. Some of you need, need, need the, the, the miracle of, of salvation on a loved one. Folks, trust Him for that. But may it begin in the secret closet of prayer. And He will make... Compassion, a priority in your heart and in your life and your short-sighted faith will disappear and you will see him prove himself powerful on your behalf. I close with a poetic prayer. Gracious God of all compassion, I must ever learn from thee. Teach me of your loving passion that my heart would like yours be. My mustard seed of puny faith betrays my disbelief. How often, Lord, I stand and quake, then run in swift retreat. Enlarge my heart with steadfast trust, so I, in times of fear, may in your presence quickly rush to watch the way you clear. May I walk by faith, not sight, emboldened by your word, and trust in you to win the fight, knowing you must wield the sword. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in these glorious truths. May they find lodging in our heart. Lord, may we build upon them. May we exercise our faith in the living God that you might indeed prove yourself powerful on our behalf for your glory and for our joy. And Lord, for that one that does not know you as Savior, how I pray. That they will see your holiness and their sinfulness and run to you with hearts crying for mercy. That today would be the day that they find that mercy and that grace that is only available through Christ Jesus. And that today they will experience the miracle of the new birth. For it's in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord, that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.